Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Join me as I seek out the small incremental changes being applied in other industries that we can learn from and that can be applied in healthcare. Can these changes bring immediate value, but also add up to the big improvements and revolution we need in healthcare? Come along with me to explore the possibilities. My innovative guests from around the globe have used small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by Sanjula Jane. She is a Chief Research Officer at Trilliant Health. Sanjula, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Nick. It's a pleasure. So if you would, you have an interesting background, I think highly relevant to the conversation we're going to have. Tell us a little bit about how you got here, uh, what your sort of career path is to to this point, and, you know, a little bit of the highlights, if you would. Sure. So like most people in healthcare, we all have some type of, you know, personal story or exposure that kind of, you know, shapes our frame of the world. Um, The short story for me is that I grew up in a family with elderly grandparents who had a range of healthcare conditions. And as a young child who was also interested in science, I started asking questions of, you know, a lot of this could be prevented by diet and lifestyle and education, right? I think I'm talking a lot about chronic conditions like diabetes and hypertension. And it kind of led me down this really education and information and you know, how do patients get information from their physicians and what are, you know, coming from an Indian family, what are the differences, you know, culturally, you know, there's a lot about our cultures and great in food. And it kind of occurred to me that, well, so much of what my grandparents were doing was actually because that's how they were taught culturally, maybe not realizing that some of those things that they were doing, maybe not have been the best for their health, so to speak. And so, you know, as I started going down the path, I said, well, I think I want to be a clinician or a physician rather who could really help educate uh, patients and give them the information they need to make better healthcare decisions. And so my mind is always thinking about decision making and how to influence that psychology. I won't bore you with all the details. So I went down that path with a lot of research, you know, working at MD Anderson and, you know, thinking about nutrition and all of these things. And I ended up majoring in psychology, you know, exactly for that reason. And along the way, I realized I don't know that it's so much a patient information issue that's a big component of it, but it's also the system, right? What is the information that a lot of our healthcare systems and institutions, what are they using to then make decisions about how they make policy think, uh, decisions or how they're um, treating patients or how they're reimbursing, you know, restrictions of care. I, I somehow I went from the patient level to more of the organizational level because I, from my vantage point, felt that the organizational level played a more, um, sig- maybe not more significant, but a uh, maybe it had more of a scale ability to directly influence that patient level behavior. And so I set out on how do I best equip decision makers of important institutions that ultimately have that influence to make these changes. And that led me down a path of research. And so I'm a trained health economist and part-time faculty over at Hopkins. You know, I've authored some books, right? So I I think a lot about uh, how to think about collecting the right information. But being in academia, I realized, well, the decision makers, you know, who are running hospitals, who are running health plans, those, you know, we're both from the D.C. area, those of us that are, you know, on the Hill, right? They're not necessarily making all their decisions by reading papers in JAMA, right? That's like one of many inputs. And 
the way that healthcare moves so fast and it's so complicated. And, you know, if you're running a, a health system, for example, right, you've got to be up to speed on telehealth and Medicare and, you know, new innovations in clinical practice. You have to know a lot of things. And it's, it's a lot as a decision maker to process that information and the speed. And so I had spent some time working in industry uh, in a couple of learning organizations focused on um, peer learning with uh, C-suite executives in particular. And so really I went down this path of by knowing how C-suite executives were making decisions, their day-to-day priorities, the types of information they were consuming, it wasn't the academic stuff that I was you know, spending so much time on. And so I wanted to find a way to bring the academic rigor of research and information to that stakeholder group. And so that ultimately kind of has led me down to do a couple of different things in uh, applied research in the, the business world. So I'll jump over straight to, you know, Trillion Health, uh, which is basically an academic stream because the reason I really came over here is Trillion Health has access to an all-payer national claims database, right? Which, you know, it's not get so in the weeds is something that academics don't usually have the privilege to have access to because it's a lot of data, it's really expensive. Most academic research will look at, you know, just Medicare, or you'll be lucky if you have a partnership with one health plan. So you can you can run studies looking at all of Blue Cross or you know Blue Cross just in Massachusetts, right? But this data set allows me to see all of it. And we're also a qualified entity with CMS, and so I get direct feeds, you know, um, from there as well. So having access to data that reflects really the entirety of the American population is truly a privilege that I have as a researcher. And then that data is very recent. So as you know, right, in academic literature, most studies usually have a lag, right? It takes so long and usually, you know, you'll be reading something in 2022 and the data is from 2020. The data that I get to play with, well, it's updated monthly, right? Claims are rolling in on an ongoing basis. So it's really given me the ability to look at trends and what's changing across the ecosystem, whether it's by geography, by pay type, by patient population, disease state, you name it. I can see that longitudinal patient journey and not to be restricted to what's happening in one health system or one payer. Um, and so that, I think, has afforded the ability to help decision makers now have a little bit of a, a different set of facts set and information. And what I spend my time doing day in and day out is trying to harness that rich data set to help extract, you know, new insights and emerging trends that I think decision makers across all aspects of healthcare should should be aware of. So phenomenal sort of background and also backstory that, you know, I think brings a tremendous amount of relevance. And it's an interesting pathway different to you know, for example, mine, where, you know, similar sort of impacts and, you know, shaping of that. But in your particular instance, you know, looking at that from a, a broader, higher level perspective, what really strikes me, and you said something back there that I, I sort of noted down, which was, you know, I, I, I don't want to say I have more influence, but, you know, m- more impact. And I think you do. And, you know, I'm sure that lots of my clinical colleagues, in in many respects, 
envy that capacity to influence in a broader behavior. We, we as physicians love that one-to-one interaction and do our best, but you know, in many cases fail because we're not acting on the appropriate data. So I think your p-value is, is fantastic in terms of impact. Um, and then you talk about this data set, and you know we're, we're, we're going to dive a little bit into that in a second. And obviously, tremendous value because it's real time. But one of the things that I, I just want to talk about here is, you know, the huge um, expose that we've seen in terms of racial inequity. And the question that I have in this is: this is great; it's claims data, but does it actually capture the full extent? Because in many instances, those are the individuals that aren't, I would imagine, not captured. I wonder how you sort of address that, because it must be one of the primary issues that you think about on a day-to-day basis. Absolutely. So with any research, right, any study design, there are numerous methodologies, different approaches, and there are always strengths and limitations. So claims-based analyses, have their limitations, uh, no doubt, but um, they also have their strengths. And so one of those limitations in a traditional sense, I would say, is, right, I, I get a lot of questions about, well, how do you see what the uninsured are doing? Or how do you see kind of that cash pay population? And there's a couple of things, right? So it's about looking at the signals. So when we think about health equity and disparities, well, I do see Medicaid, right? And a lot of the underserved population is reflected mm-hmm. in the Medicaid population. So it's not everybody, but it's it's a very representative group. And we know that so many of the challenges our, our healthcare system is trying to solve when it comes to those disparities really starts with the Medicaid population or what I would call maybe even Medicaid lookalikes, right? Mm. So a lot of the discussion in the health services, health policy world is, well, some of the individuals that need healthcare the most, Medicaid is that safety net program for them. Mm. So even if they're not enrolling into, into the program, right, there are a lot of things that we can learn from what we know about the healthcare behaviors and utilization patterns and psychographics of a typical kind of Medicaid um, individual. That said, there are other ways um, we can start looking at, a, um, let's call it proxies, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things, like I said, I'm not an expert in this area, but as a researcher, I think a lot about, when we talk about disparities, we tend to go straight to race and ethnicity, mm-hmm. and that is surely an important factor. That said, there are a lot of correlations that are statistically significant that we know that some, a lot of the disparities come down to socioeconomic conditions, right? Your education status, your income, where you live, and your zip code. And so, by and large, where claims can be limited, well, what I can see in the data set is I can I also um, our team uh, stitches together other data sets. So we look at things like from Esri consumer data sets, which we use machine learning to kind of tokenize that to the healthcare activity. So that affords the ability now to look at things at the zip code level. And you can make a lot of, um, you can glean a lot of insights from what you see by geography and by income and by education that is a pretty good uh, one to, or I can't show it to you from the data perspective, but if you read any of the literature and other experts who look at that from a survey perspective, it's pretty aligned. So long-winded way of saying, you know, there are other ways to get to it. And um, because the claims data set 
can be stitched together with other geographic data sets. There are ways to ultimately get to that uh, those questions. And I think you see that in some of the utilization patterns. But I think we know enough um, across the industry of generally which populations are affected and why. And so I think we spent almost too much time in the industry rehashing things that we know as opposed to really thinking about, okay, let's take individual examples of healthcare behaviors or conditions and figure out what's it going to take to move the needle, right? So the example to that is whether it's telehealth or behavioral health, right? Like, are there differences in what we're seeing in some of those geographies or groups like Medicaid that are different, right? So if you look at telehealth utilization trends, there is a difference by geography, but more importantly, there's a difference by payer group and consumer subset. Mm-hmm. When we look at behavioral health, we see that, you know, there are utilization trends across all geographies and all patient segments. It just, uh, there's maybe less differential in terms of some notable things that people are doing differently here or there. So depending on what you're studying, you're going to get different questions, but sorry, different answers, but ultimately, you know, where claims can be limited, um, if you think beyond a, a black and white approach and you really think about all the things we know, of what are the factors that influence those outcomes and those populations, it's about looking at the right variables as opposed to, you know, variable that we might think we're looking at. So for those of you just joining, I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Today I'm talking to Sangela Jane. She's the chief research officer at Trilliant Health. We were just diving deep, deep into the data sets, the ability to sort of tease out, find proxies, I think extremely important in terms of representation and obviously supplementation with other data sets that, you know, truly fascinating. And, um, you know, there was something else that you mentioned that I wanted to just get a little bit deeper into, which was, you know, your understanding of the C-suite that you sort of talked about and, you know, what influences them? Because ultimately, you know, one of the things that I say repeatedly online is, you know, I, I appeal to these people at the leadership because they're the ones most equipped to actually affect real change. And and I, I my the notion that anybody comes in trying to do harm or do a poor job is just it it it's, doesn't sit with me. I think everybody comes in with the right intent, but they struggle because of the data. What have you learned when it comes to that influence? What are the components that contribute to that group? And how do we help provide them with the appropriate decision-making tools. You've obviously found some pathway to that, right? Absolutely. And we probably have to have a whole other hour just about that. (laughs) Um, But I agree with you. And, you know, a large part of why I I had recently written a book during the pandemic about leadership, about, you know, ground rules for leaders in the new health economy. And, you know, I think there are a lot of factors at play, but the starting point to what you alluded to is that leadership is hard. And it's particularly challenging in healthcare because of how complex the industry is, right? And how much knowledge you need to have. And it's a highly regulated industry, right? So that's one piece of it. I think we have a lot of silos in the industry, right? So, you know, you have to be, even if you are a 
health system executive, right? You have to maybe know about clinical care, like a lot of things that, you know, you would as a medical training would have to be aware of, right? How to think about physician management and patients and keeping up with the innovative science and technology. But you also have to be aware about policy and reimbursement and the ins and outs of Medicare and Medicaid, right? And then you have to know about all the things about governance and how to think about running a board. Right? You have to have so much domain knowledge in a lot of ways across a lot of areas no matter where you sit, right? Pharma can be really deep in the clinical innovation side and know everything there, but you know where pharma can be hampered is not knowing enough about the realities of what it takes uh, to facilitate change management at the bedside, right? Like I'm just kind of throwing that out there, but the lack of silos, um, I think is another piece of that. And then the other part is because of how complex healthcare is, right? There's a lot of historical information that I think we tend to miss. So, and I experienced this coming in the industry, right? I'm I'm still pretty young in my career. And as I, when I teach students in the classroom, right, it's like you have these great bushy-eyed students who are like, I'm, you know, I think we should build this innovation, right? Or this technology, and this is going to be great. And it's, it's not that that's a bad idea, but then I'll say, well, that actually may have already been tried 20 years ago. Or have you thought about what, how are you going to get physicians to adopt it in their clinical practice when they're already doing 30 other things and you they have, you know, a bunch of other companies pitching them different point solutions, right? So there's a lot of that context, right? Or in some ways, I would also argue that history almost like repeats itself, right? So today we're talking a lot about value-based payment models and ACOs and all of that. Well, to some extent, we were kind of going through that back in the 90s with the HMOs and some of those models, right? So they're just, we're iterating on a lot of the same things that we've been talking about for years. And so if you don't have all of that context, you can spend a lot of time as a leader, whether you're a new leader or even an experienced leader, trying to just catch up on that, right? And you may be spending a lot of time on something that maybe it had you known about some other kind of component or what it takes, you, you fast track some of that. So that's a long-winded way of saying, right, it's hard, right? It's really challenging. It's a lot of information. And you almost have to just survive in your day-to-day operations to run, you know, I'll pick up the hospitals again, right? You have to just keep the hospital lights on and get, you know, the ED working and the operations going. But sometimes it can be hard to take a step back as a busy executive and say, okay, this is my today state. What are all the things I need to be thinking about and know about how to prepare, you know, for that future state? And so. How do you solve it? I mean, I think it's not a silver bullet and it's a matter of a lot of bringing different stakeholders to the table. I think we have for far too long been way too siloed. And so we have to have more conversations where you have payers sitting next to providers, right? You have to have more information exchange and learning the shared understanding. Um, Ultimately, I also think the system is working to some extent the way it's designed, and that's a whole other conversation we could have for another day, right? But a lot of the financial incentives and policy structures and, you know, who is lobbying for what, that explains a lot of the challenges that we're all having. And so until we all come to the table and say we either all agree that we need to move to change some of the incentives, right, for the good of health care for the, you know, American population versus for the good of, you know, being profitable and making a lot of money for our respective business, right? There's a lot of things that are happening based off the way the system is designed. And so 
there's some inherent things that make it difficult for leaders that, you know, is probably a several years long coming together moment that we would have to think about. But that aside, I think it's just about equipping leaders with as much information in a way that's consumable and can get them to think and anticipate what might be coming down the pike. And I think one thing that I've focused a lot about on is the idea of peer comparison and rate of change. So one thing I have learned in working with a lot of executives is it's far too common to get into this pigeonhole of best practices, right? So we say, oh, you know, health system A had this really cool initiative and, yeah, you, you know, patient engagement, whatever it may be. Then all of a sudden you have 10 other, you know, hospitals saying, great, we're going to go emulate that. There's a lot you can learn from each other, but it's also important to understand, are you comparing apples to apples? Do you have comparable patient populations? Do you have comparable economic conditions, right? Because how you wait and learn from different people also depends on what is relevant to your own unique situation. So I think, I don't know how you want to frame that, but more of a nuanced uh, exchange of information and trying to help people make the right comparisons or thinking about the right peer groups. So the best example I have is, you know, you look at the U.S. News World Report, right? Everyone kind of says, oh, well, Mayo and Cleveland Clinic, right? They're the gold standards. You could have some hospitals, you know, across the country. They're like, well, I want to be just like Mayo, right? Well, there are a lot of things that are just inherently going to make that never true, right? Just based off of your markets and your patients and, and everything about your, your organizational model. But yet we've spent a lot of time saying we're going to go learn about those things. So I think there's a, a better sense of data-driven comparisons that can help leaders move forward. And then the second part is rate of change, right? So I think sometimes we have a tendency to extract, you know, things that we read about in headlines or things that we're hearing from our peers to say, okay, well, that's going to be the new shiny object. So let's go now go focus on a, a whole new initiative to stand that up. Well, have we actually taken a step back to contextualize across all of these things that are happening? What's actually moving the needle and not, right? Is this just a fad? Is this affecting 10% of our populations or 20% of our populations? Depending on the answer to that, we might make a different decision of what we do as an organization, right? So I can bore you with a couple of examples there, but I think you can kind of get the conceptual point. So I think leaders are in a tough spot and the more that we just have a shared understanding and have a data-driven conversation around what's happening in the ecosystem, I think that takes away the subjectivity and the opinions of what I'm doing is better than you, or this is the right approach. Prove it, right? The number, show the measures, show the outcomes, explain how it works, what's the magnitude of change. I think if we started holding ourselves to that level of rigor and discipline in, in our conversations, we would see a very different set of decisions being made across the industry. So I, I'm just going to say that the density of knowledge and insight in uh, your, your um, uh, content is just uh, extraordinary. Um, you, you rank in uh, the, the top list of people I want to break bread with and spend an awful lot of time just to understand and dive into so many areas. Um, you know, you, you raise a point that I repeatedly make, you know, the system is not broken, it's working as designed, and we have to fix that. You know, that's not always a popular notion, but it's the reality. And I think, you know, you're sort of attempting to do that 
Um, I, I found it fascinating, you, you know, talking about these sort of innovations. And I, I hate to crush that, but, you know, that's one of the things that happens over time. And, you know, I'm, I'm brought back to my father-in-law in this case, who always used to say, you can't put an old head on young shoulders, which is, you know, another way of saying it, it's very hard to gain that experience. And that's not to say those individuals don't, but, you know, and ultimately, as you sort of describe it, um, you know, those um, various elements of, of finding peer companies and what I think, importantly, this data-driven conversation, I think, for me, is the anchor point um, in all of this. If you could, do you have a sense of what you could do or what would be the most value to you to really help change the trajectory? Well, that's a loaded question. So if I had to condense that, I would say, well, I think we have to almost take a step back and all accept that the way we've been doing things isn't working, right? And I think we almost need to open our eyes to different methodologies and not just take things that are presented to us at face value. And so to me, a lot of the issues stem from a read a headline. I'll pick on that telehealth example again, right? Well, Americans love telehealth. Okay, well, that's going to be the guiding point. Did we really ask, critically ask the questions about how did we come to that conclusion? Which which populations were surveyed? Is that a temporary versus a permanent trend, right? Like we, we don't really take a step back sometimes as an industry to critically debate and ask those questions and challenge each other. And so I think if we just had that, level of candor and discussion maybe going, that might start exposing some of the things we need to work on as phase two of that. So unfortunately, as we do each and every week, we have run out of time. That's a, a terrible tragedy in this particular instance, but that doesn't mean to say that we can't repeat this and go in uh, into more detail. Um, it just remains for me to thank you, uh, Sangela, for joining me uh, on the show. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Nick. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining me today. Do you have any better ideas or have you found a small incremental change that's brought about a big improvement in your world? Let's continue the conversation on our hashtag, The Incrementalist, or share with me at DrNick1 on Twitter. You can find more information about the show on our program page at healthcarenowradio.com. And tune in next time to hear my discussions with leaders and innovators from around the globe who've revolutionized their space by using small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist, and I'm starting a revolution through evolution. <laughs> <laughs>